It's Monday, July 6th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Greeks, they're on the verge of Grexiting, it would seem, with a referendum that no one was really sure what it meant. But since it seemed to correlate to an FU to the EU, then that side won. So what now? Collapse, contagion, currency, maybe a new currency. Possibly we'll see the new currency, the yogurt. That's my choice for a new unit of currency. It's trendy, it's healthy, it reflects Greek culture. The yogurt is trading two dollops to the dollar. That would be the subunit of the yogurt, the dollop. But what does it mean? What does it all mean? I don't know. I don't know. The Greeks don't know. Paul Krugman doesn't know. The now Grexited Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, he doesn't know. The Greek prime minister, Alexis Tsipras, called the referendum, quote, a mandate to strengthen our negotiating position to seek a viable solution. Mandate? What kind of mandate is this? No one knows what this vote meant. They were voting on terms that were already off the table. The table had been folded and put in storage. It was a bridge table because they were debating essentially a bridge loan. So saying this referendum was a mandate is saying like an episode of Twin Peaks had a terse narrative structure. It's like praising the anecdotes my six-year-old tells for their pith, concision, and logical cohesion. It's like calling a Grateful Dead concert a tightly orchestrated bout of musicality before a highly organized group of good-smelling young people. What I'm saying is none of that's true. We don't know that it's a mandate. What that vote was a mandate for was maybe blowing car horns in the street. I have no idea what it was a mandate for. No one knows what it means, but it's fine. Here's my one hope, that one day we do learn what it means. This is a great economics experiment. I'm glad it's not being played out in my country, but at least we'll be able to take some lessons from it. We have a hard time taking lessons from economics. Like, The recession in the United States, it's pretty clear. Stimulus worked pretty well. Austerity didn't. You could argue with the margins, but those statements are true. That's what the evidence shows. But the mass of voters, I don't think believe that. I don't think they even know what those terms mean. So I hope that one day we will know if this Greek everything, the referendum, if there's a Grexit, all of that, if it was smart. We can compare Greece to Spain and Portugal, right? Spain and Portugal, Mediterranean countries, unemployment in the 20s. Spain and Portugal agree to the bailout, payback, whatever you want to call it. They're going to stay in the EU, agree to terms with the Germans, essentially. The Greeks don't. Let's see if the Greeks do any better. All right. Let's see what devaluing their currency does for the economy. Let's pay attention. Let's not blow our own mandate horns. Let's not pop our plebiscite poppers in the face of uncertainty. Because you know what? Here in the United States, our next vacation spot just might be hanging in the balance. On the show today, I spiel about Rick Perry, race warrior. Interesting insights from the bespoke, bespeckled one. And Matt Dix will be by to tell you how to tell stories with your heart. Stories that presumably go glubba glub, glubba glub, thump thump, you know, with your heart. But Matt will also offer a critique of George Lucas's storytelling skills. You won't want to miss that. Mm-hmm. 
Joining me now is Matthew Dix. He is called by some the most interesting man in the world. Not by his wife, we've just found out, especially when he demurs from tasks of taking out the garbage. Really? He says, do you want the most interesting man in the world to take out the garbage? We call Matt that because he is a multiple moth storytelling champion. He's the author of three novels now. Yes, the fourth one comes out in September. Fourth one comes out in September. He runs a storytelling class in Hartford, public school teacher, DJ on the weekends. We never even got to that. Survivor <laughs> of multiple bee stings, et cetera, et cetera. Hello, Matt. Hello, Mike. So you've been working with Frank, who's not going to join us today, but Frank is uh, the guy, the fellow, the listener we chose to coach up for a story. And as you've been coaching him, by the way, give us a progress report. How's Frank doing? Frank is doing extremely well. We have chosen wisely. Yes. You came to a crossroads there in his story, or you came to a point where you were called upon to impart some knowledge. And I want to talk about the lessons. What are the big lessons that were true of Frank's story and are probably true of most people's story when they're trying to get it to uh, the form where you can present it to an audience? Sure. I have two things that I took from Frank's story that could really help him. The first is it's a little... It's a little earthy, crunchy, but it's um, what I believe. Mm -hmm. I believe that when you're telling a story, whether you're on the stage or you're sitting here recording the gist, what you're doing is you're trying to time travel. Mm -hmm. You're trying to take the listeners, the audience, back to a time in your life and recreate that time. I think of it as a bubble, and I think of it as like a soap bubble that is easily popped in many ways. So my goal is for my audience to forget that they're sitting in a theater. And my goal is for them to even forget that I'm there. Mm -hmm. I want my voice to be the only thing that sort of reaches them. And I want everything in their mind to be back in the time that I'm trying to describe. So does this preclude present day references or references that would be anachronistic to that time? If you're telling a story that happened in the 70s, you don't want to make a Google reference. Right, That's exactly. Yeah, you avoid those. Yeah. Uh, you avoid comparing people to actors and actresses. Yeah. Because as soon as you do that, if I compare someone to Harrison Ford, now you're thinking about Star Wars, and you're not thinking about the place that I want you to be in. Okay. The thing that Frank does in his story is he addresses the audience directly, uh -huh. and it's something I never do. Because when you speak to the audience and you say, so now I would like to take you to a different part of my story, you've broken the bubble because you've reminded them that they're an audience and that they're in a theater and there's a person standing there. And it almost is a moment of expositoriness in your story rather than telling the story. So a couple times in Frank's story, he says something like, so I want to make something clear to you, so I'm going to describe another moment in Calvin's life. Right. And I want him to remove all those references completely so that when we are seeing Calvin, we're only seeing Calvin and we're never speaking to the audience and asking them to do anything. They should be relaxed in their seats. They should be just letting the words wash over them. So then what's a way you convey that information? Maybe it would be useful to say, well, now, the thing you should know about Calvin is this. You would not say the thing you should know about Calvin is this? No, I wouldn't. Would you say, like, Calvin's the kind of kid who? Exactly. It's, yeah, it's a little yeah. bit different, but I see why. Yeah. It and would. sometimes it's transition words. Yeah. It's like, so three days later. Yeah. It's a reason I tell stories chronologically all the time. I never want to sort of get to a point in my story and then say, let me tell you about him when he was three. Yeah. If I'm going to tell you about him when he's three, I'm going to start when he's three. And I'm going to always be moving forward in the story. Could you do a technique where we join a story, the kid's waiting for the bus, and then you would say, now, you know, one of these to get to this point, like a lot of movies do. You start in the middle of action, you back up, and then you rejoin the action. Right. I don't usually... I've, do I've done that in one story of 60. Yeah. I tend not to tell people to do it. Now... Frank actually does that in his story, and it's with the bus, actually. He, the bus comes up, and 
you know, he starts calling out whatever that presidential number is. Yeah. He does it beautifully because in that portion of the story, he transitions back gently. Mm-hmm. And there isn't any sort of direction to the audience, any specific direction. It's an easy transition. And it's just the matter of using good transition words to move people through the story. And sometimes filmmakers do it. Like I just watched American Sniper and it starts, he's in the middle of a battle scene and then we go back and... I don't know what the benefit of that was. I mean, I could see the script structured so that it would just go chronologically. Right. Well, the other thing about storytelling is you're playing a game with the audience. You're pretending that you're telling the story for the first time off the cuff, even though realistically, if you're on stage, you're not. And the audience plays the game back with you. They think, they say, yes, you're telling the story for the first time. And you want it to sound that way. You want your story to sound as if you were sitting in a bar telling a friend, only now you have a large audience. Mm -hmm. But if you were in the bar sitting with your friend and you said, I opened my eyes upon a green field, I was lying on the ground, you'd walk away, you'd find a new friend. (laughs) So treat your stories as if That's dramatic (laughs) Jones over there. (laughs) Yeah, but a movie can seem more arty. You can kind of get away with that artifice in a movie because it's supposed to be there. But in a story, you just want to be telling the story to your buddy, except in some cases you have a thousand buddies sitting in seats in front of you. Right, and so these techniques that you're talking about are good for just telling stories at a family reunion, just being a more interesting storyteller without anyone grading you or passing you on to the Grand Slam competition. It is. Yes. I always am thinking about how you want people to be more interesting. And this is one of the ways sort of to get them to tell better stories, the world will be a more interesting place. And it's true. Absolutely. You just, if you can tell a good story, your life is going to be more interesting, or at least it's going to be more interesting for the people around you. Okay, so you're a time traveler in a soap bubble. What else? All right, the other one is Frank's story is sort of a puzzle box. It is a story about him trying to figure out his son, Calvin, throughout a bunch of things. And he does a beautiful job, and puzzle boxes are great because it makes the audience want to solve the puzzle along with Frank. Mm -hmm. The thing that's missing from his story right now is the heart. It's got the head, but not the heart. So... When Frank discovers something, or when he's struggling to discover something, his, the way he tells the story now, he's giving us the mental process as to how he's trying to figure out what Calvin's trying to say. Simultaneously, we need to know how he's feeling. So if he can't figure out why Calvin is shouting the number 33, we're going to wonder what that means, but we need to know what does that mean for him as a father? How is that impacting him as a person? Because ultimately, the arc of a story is going to be the way a person changes from one point to the other. And the change can't just be, I figured out that Mm -hmm. Calvin wanted to go to Wendy's. The real arc has to be, I felt this way about being a man or a father. And in the end of the story, I felt this way. So you've got to have the heart with the head. The comparison I always use is Harrison Ford as Han Solo and as Indiana Jones. Both of those guys, throughout a good portion of their movies, are puzzle box guys. They're solving problems. If you think of Indy, for example... I could improve Indiana Jones. It's actually a somewhat flawed movie Uh because Indiana Jones at the end of the movie tells Miriam to look away from the Ark, which is the acknowledgement that Indy has faith that he does not have at the beginning of the story. Miriam, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Miriam. Don't look at it no matter what happens. But you never see Indiana Jones struggle with faith throughout the movie. He is just a guy solving problems all the way till the end, and then finally he acknowledges he has faith. It'd be a better story if there were moments throughout Indiana Jones when we saw him struggle with the idea that he's going to have faith in this religious or this magic thing. Mm -hmm. So 
if Spielberg wants some help, yeah. we could make it a better story. I actually argue that the third film is a better film because in that movie, Indy is struggling with his relationship with his father throughout the movie. One. So there's head and heart working at the same time. Yeah. And he does the same thing, actually, as Han Solo. Uh-huh. He's a puzzle box solver all the way through in that movie until he saves Luke, Yeah. right? So Luke yeah. can destroy the Death Star. But really his moment is when he's about to be put into carbonite and Leia says, I love you. Yeah. And he says, I know. I love you. I know. And that's his moment. That's his heart moment. But it takes two <laughs> movies to get Han Solo to show his heart. Yeah, that's so again, the very last scene, his very last scene in Empire. Right. Yeah, yeah. So give me Star Wars. Let me fix it. I will show you Han Solo's heart as well as his head as well. Well, I think there was a little faith actually in Star Wars when he uh, decries all those hokey religions in favor of a good blaster at your side. So he actually says he doesn't have faith. He doesn't believe in anything. I guess. I think it's a throwaway line, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think the reason most people don't put the feeling into it is because they're not in touch with the feeling? Because in recollecting, you recollect with your head, so you kind of divorce yourself from the actual emotion. Why do people, when they do this, not talk about the feeling, just talk about the intellect? I think there's a couple reasons. I work with a woman who's a great storyteller, and when I hear her tell her stories for the first time, she always skips over the emotionally difficult part. She just pretends it's not there, and she finishes her story, and I always say to her, so the part that was the most interesting that you didn't talk about, and she said, that's the part I don't want to talk about. Right. And I said, but that's the part you have to talk about. So for some people, I think it's the matter of it's not the thing that they really want to say. I don't think that's the case in Frank's case. I think Frank kind of sees his story as a puzzle box story, and he needs to be reminded that as interesting as it is to figure out how Calvin thinks, it's, it's actually more compelling to us to find out what Frank is like as a man. Right. If he only tells his puzzle box story, you're gonna leave whatever theater he's in and you're gonna be like, I heard a story about a guy who figured out his autistic kid. But if he tells you a story about how he doesn't think he's a good enough father and how he struggles with that, and then there's a day when he takes a tiny step forward and he feels like he's a better father, that story will hang on you. And if you're a father, you'll walk away thinking like, oh God, he's." just like me Um, it'll be a story that lives with you a lot longer than just those just those numbers and those you know calculations because oftentimes the intellectual component are is specific to that actual event whereas the emotional component is the thing that makes it relatable right but people... there are what seven emotions available to humans (laughs) it's an infinite number (laughs) infinite number of puzzles to be solved it's probably, Mike, why you don't want to tell stories about yourself, by the way, <laughs> you know, and how you would much prefer to share ideas that you have yes. and to demonstrate the ideas of others yes. rather than to let us know really anything about the true Mike Pesca. A hundred percent. It's probably because there's something in there yearning to get out that you are will, unwilling to show or unwilling to look at. I think just the gist benefits from that. <laughs> I'm willing to sublimate my emotions I think in favor of a pursuit of the intellect. Or perhaps You're Andrea welcome. benefits, but maybe um, the gist <laughs> might do better to hear a little bit of, you know, Mike Pesca, the heart. And now here's some of Mike's <laughs> feelings. Yeah, that's why we tune in. Right. <laughs> It's good. These are the great debates. This is what keeps the man interesting. In fact, the most interesting man in the world, Matthew Dix. Good advice. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Did we get rickrolled on race? 
So what does Donald Trump's presence in the presidential race do? We're told it obscures the good ideas, the other candidates with their real substance. Like what Scott Walker said about a corn dog in Iowa the other day. Did the media report that? They did not. What about Lindsey Graham downing two glasses of lemonade in Amherst, New Hampshire? Drink lemonade free or die, people. The media also not reporting that. The media, like George Stephanopoulos, asked candidates like Rick Perry about Donald Trump. Your fellow Texan Ted Cruz said he salutes Donald Trump. Where do you stand? Well, everybody gets to pick and choose who they want to be for. But the fact is, I've said very clearly that Donald Trump does not represent the uh, Republican Party. I was a fan. Now, that question came just three days after Perry gave what the Wall Street Journal called the speech, the speech of the campaign so far. Not his campaign, everyone's campaign. The speech was on race. George Stephanopoulos did not ask Rick Perry one question about this speech or about his ideas about Republicans and race. And so as not to let Donald Trump hijack the gist's agenda, let us give Rick Perry's ideas an airing. Perry was speaking at the National Press Club, started with the words, thank you, and then immediately began talking about a 99-year-old legal case from his state of Texas. A 17-year-old black boy was sentenced to death for rape and murder. The sentence was carried out by a mob viciously, and Rick Perry spared no detail. Someone started cutting his fingers off so that he could not climb that chain. One man castrated him. By the end of this recounting, Perry's voice caught a little bit when he said, We don't want to believe that our great state could ever have been the scene of such unimaginable horror. But it is an episode in our history that we cannot ignore. It is an episode that we have an obligation to transcend. Now this is a wow moment. Well, it would have been a wow moment if anyone was paying attention. Now, to be fair, decrying a 100-year-old instance of racism is easier than pointing an uncomfortable finger at today's racism, but it is a little bit unusual for a Republican candidate to speak in these terms. Then Perry took a turn to the economic, and in doing so took a turn to the usual. He chose to repeat usual tropes, like when he said this. We spend $450 billion a year on Medicaid. And yet health outcomes for those on Medicaid are no better for, than those who have no health insurance at all. All right, you hear this a lot. It's highly disputed. It's found in studies frequently cited by Avik Roy, a healthcare expert at the Manhattan Institute, who's also a journalist for conservative publications. He writes articles with headlines like, Why Medicaid is a Humanitarian Catastrophe. Avik Roy has, by the way, been hired by the Perry campaign. So is Medicare worse than not having anything? The short answer is really hard to compare the two, apples to oranges. There are a lot of reasons why people on Medicaid would have bad outcomes that have nothing to do with how bad Medicaid itself is. And I think Rick Perry is there a little bit using the defects of Medicaid as a proxy for not improving the healthcare system overall. All right, next up, Perry starts talking about black poverty and bragging about the state of Texas's accomplishments in this area. We have not eliminated black poverty in Texas, but we have made meaningful progress. In New York, the supplemental poverty rate for blacks 
is 26%. In California, it is 30%. In Washington, D.C., it is 33%. In Texas, it's just 20%. All right, let's stop for a second. I have different figures than Perry does. According to Kaiser, the poverty rates broken out by race show in Texas, 23% of black residents live in poverty. Sounds terrible, it is, but it's also the seventh best in the nation, seventh lowest poverty rates among black people. So that's good, but complicating Perry's argument is the fact that the best states, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Connecticut, those aren't states that adhere to his reforms of, quote, curtailing frivolous lawsuits and unreasonable regulations. Also, New York, which Perry was saying is terrible in terms of black poverty, is actually very close to Texas. It is the 10th best state, according to Kaiser, with a black poverty rate of 26%. All right, fine. But let me add this before black America starts looking to Texas as the promised land. Stop it, black America. Stop looking to Texas. Just for a second. All right. Thank you, black America. Anyway, Texas is not like most other states. African-Americans there do account for a little more than 10% of the population, but they are dwarfed by the number of Latinos. So it is a weird thing, I think, to be boasting about how your state is accomplished in the area of black poverty, when overall your state ranks 40th out of 51, including Washington, D.C., in the overall poverty rate. They're not doing good with poverty. There are a lot of reasons for this, but I don't understand why a governor could be going around saying we should be proud of how we've helped black people with poverty, even though we're doing terribly in terms of Hispanic people with poverty. No, what has happened in Texas has a few explanations, but frivolous lawsuits aren't any of those explanations. One, Texas greatly benefited from the oil boom from fracking that helped the state. As oil prices declined, so did the Texas state finances. I'm not explaining everything Perry accomplished in terms of oil prices. Some people do that. They go too far. But of course, oil prices have helped Texas, have helped overall poverty in Texas. Second, the specific kind of black person in Texas is a little bit different from the kind of black person entrenched in poverty in other states. There's an effect called the next great migration or the reverse migration, and it's college-educated African-Americans moving to the South. Perry deserves credit, some credit, for creating an atmosphere that attracts college-educated people, including black people. But this means that it is less true that Perry enacted policies that helped poor blacks in his state so much as it is true that he enacted policies to attract richer blacks from out of state, thus making the overall black population on average wealthier. And that's fine. That's called a governor doing a good job, but it can't work on a national level. The president doesn't have the option of attracting a richer type of person from another state. Well, he can if the policy is attracting really well-educated Nigerians to America, but I do not think that is what Rick Perry is getting at. So once Perry got past what really amounts to low tax, high growth, let's do it the Texas way, the boilerplate, he did say some interesting things. Here's one thing he said. There has been and there will continue to be an important and a legitimate role for the federal government in enforcing civil rights. Too often, 
we Republicans, me included, have emphasized our message on the 10th Amendment, but not our message on the 14th. And this is not nothing. This really is different for a Republican. This is not what Republicans have been saying for about a decade in an effort to attract the black vote. They've been saying black people should vote for us because we'll grow the economy more than Democrats and that will help black people. Perry absolutely said that. They also have been saying that black people should vote for us Republicans because we share religious values like family values. Perry didn't go there at all. And they've been saying that black people should vote for us because Abraham Lincoln was a Republican and Democrats were the party that blocked civil rights. And Perry actually blew that up a little bit. He talked about Barry Goldwater in 1964 opposing civil rights. And then Perry did say that stuff about state rights, criticized state rights a little bit, and talked about the 14th Amendment. But he didn't say anything about what his belief in the 14th Amendment means in practical terms, right? He didn't say a phrase like body cams or voting rights or affirmative action. Basically, Perry gave a speech, the speech of the campaign, aimed at courting the black vote in one small way that Republicans have not tried before. It seemed like the kind of speech that a white person who always votes Republican might think would be appealing to a black person who never votes Republican. It ain't nothing. It's something. And the big thing is, it's a lot better than what certain blowhard reality show candidates have been saying about race or anything else for that matter. And that's it for today's show. You know, Donald Trump has been drawing all the attention away from just producer Andrea Salenzi, who not only moved to a new apartment, but in doing so, chose not to besmirch the vast majority of Mexicans. Managing producer Joel Meyer has donated his Donald Trump Serta Perfect Sleeper to charity. Unfortunately, the mechanism of this donation was that he dumped it on a heavily traveled stretch of the 10. Mattress blocking the left lanes, traffic slows to a crawl. Thanks, Trump. Executive producer Andy Bowers is thinking of taking the entire Panoply Network, Happier, Inc., About Race, over to Reels. Then he found out, or at least heard a rumor, that Reels might have a visual component to it. Got cold feet. The gist. We want to clarify some past scandalous statements. We didn't mean all sousaphone players. Some, I assume, are good people. So I stand by what I said. Has it helped me in the polls? Yes. Has the Greek government ignored my idea for naming the currency the yogurt? Yes. Does the gist care? The gist does not care. Here's what the gist cares about. Playing you a song from They Might Be Giants. They debut a song every Monday here on the show. It's part of their Dial a Song. And today's edition is The Velvet Ape.